just because students make bad choices doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to do better. It's back to the drawing boards and playing with it and playing with it and playing with it. And in May, a new structure emerged finally. I, there was a new structure last year I played with for a long time. But again, we were having this opt out. And then May came around and I was playing with this one thing and it was starting to show real promise. I ran it. In, in this episode, we bring back on the podcast for the third time, the godfather of the thinking classroom. Peter Lildehall. We spoke with Peter way back on one of our first episodes, episode 21 of this podcast, about how he built the components of the Thinking Classroom. It was also before he released his book called Building Thinking Classrooms. We then brought him back on episode 98. We talked about group work and how to choose tasks and what's the optimal number for groups. And in this episode, we bring Peter back on for that third time. And we're going to talk about the three components of closing your lessons so students walk away feeling confident, connected to the learning that took place. All right, folks, let's dig in with one of our favorite friends in the math world, Mr. Peter Lildehall. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are from MakeMathMoments.com. This is the only podcast that coaches you through a six-step plan to grow your mathematics program, whether at the classroom level or at the district level. And we do that by helping you cultivate and foster your mathematics program like a strong, healthy, and balanced tree. So if you master the six parts of an effective mathematics program, the impact of your program will grow and reach far and wide. Every week, you'll get the insight you need to stop feeling overwhelmed, gain back your confidence, and get back to enjoying the planning and facilitating of your mathematics program for the students or for you district leaders, the educators that you serve. Hey, hey there, Peter. Welcome back to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. First of all, we want to know where have you been lately? What's been going on in your world? But I've also got to say, I feel like over the many district calls that John and I have been on over these past six months, your name, your work, whether it's BTC or they say Thinking Classrooms or they say Peter, it comes up so often. So clearly you have struck a chord. We know that it is definitely a movement and it's a movement in the right direction. But the hard part is it's still hard work. Teaching math is still hard work. So tell us how's things going in your world? Where have you been and what have you been up to lately? First of all, thanks for having me back. I don't know if you know this, but the first podcast I did with you was also the first podcast I ever did. Oh, wow. um, so it's wow. always exciting for me to come back to this space. I love doing the podcast format. I do a lot of them, but there's something about the Canadian content, the, <laughs> the collegiality with this. The old crews back together. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Um, where I, right now I'm coming to you from a place called Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And this is my last stop on a four-week road trip through the U.S., through is the wrong word. I've been crisscrossing this country back and forth for four weeks. And where have I been? I've been all over. I've been right. Missouri, Kansas, California, Texas, Colorado, Idaho, mm-hmm. now yeah. in Wisconsin. Just yeah. got here from Washington. I was also in Utah. How come you don't sound like you're out of breath? That's what I'm wondering here. Because I'm exhausted. John and I were in Houston last week. And I feel like, man, those trips wipe me out now. And I can only imagine. I don't know if it's just that you're just in such a such a zone. And yeah, it's just you're you're it's normal I use for you lights now. to relax, although I usually catch up on email, but it's my downtime. But prior to that, I've been also all over the world. This summer I was in Warsaw and I was in Oslo mm-hmm. for the release of first the Polish edition of Building Thinking Classrooms wow. and then the release of the Norwegian edition. So there's, I think, five or six languages in print now with about seven or eight more to come. Next week, I'm on my way to Australia. Congratulations, my friend. That's pretty remarkable. Just like you said, it is spreading like wildfire. Maybe that's too close to home for us Canadians with what's going on right now. But it is a very massive achievement that you've had and continue to have here as more and more people dig in. 
Yeah, it's a huge impact. And I think it shows from the movement that's happening is, is that f folks are learning from your work, reading the book, but then quickly implementing and having success, which is changing students, right? It's changing the experience that students are having in math classes and people know it and feel it. And that's why it's spreading by word of mouth, I'm sure. And you know, right before we hit record, you know, we were chatting about building thinking classroom conferences that you're going to, but also you said usually the local place is doing all the organizing you're attending and you've got your, Hey, I'm coming. It's going to be awesome. And you're saying it's such a great experience, but when you're there and you're talking with folks, like, what are you hearing as some of the successes that teachers are having? I just named a few because those are the successes I've had, the successes I've had in the classroom, but also what are some of the people are asking you the most? I'm curious about, they're going to ask you probably the same questions everywhere you go. I wonder what is that most asked question as well? Mm. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. All right. So first of all, let's back up to success. I couldn't be happier, of course, but one of the things I think is happening is that building thinking classrooms is almost becoming a frame that other good work is attaching itself to, mm -hmm. right? Math education, there's so much good work by so many good people out there that are doing things that are filling the space with resources. You two, the Graham Fletchers, the Mike Flynn, everybody is filling this space with amazing work, right? Robert Kaplinsky. And I think what Building Thinking Classrooms is doing is it's giving it a frame to hang some of these things on. Not that they'd need it. There's so much good work out there. But I think in some way, it's become a synthesizing organ. Mm -hmm. in a way. The conference I went to in Indiana was unbelievable, right? They reached out to us about a year ago and said, hey, we'd love to have a Building Thinking Classroom conference. And I, I'm like, saying, fill your boots. I can't <laughs> that that would ever work. There would be enough people that were interested in wanting to do that. We went through the process of them initiating the call and so on. And I was excited by it, but there was a part of me that said, okay, I just can't see it mm -hmm. coming together that that many people would be that interested. Well, they had 925 people, 200 presentations, 128 presenters. I was on stage. I was busy. I was doing sessions, but I wasn't the only one. And I was just blown away. And why 925? Because the auditorium held 927. And two security guards. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And aside from the amazing organization by Indiana Learning and the local organizers in Franklin and just the synergy that people brought, I think one of the things that was really magical about it was everyone was talking about the same thing, which doesn't happen when we go to an NCTM. People right, have different right. interests. And it's not that they were all talking about the same thing about building thinking classrooms, but right. that was the structure around which the conversation was happening. But the thing I liked the most was people were treating it like a problem to solve rather than a choreographed dance to master. So what are you doing with thin slicing? Have you figured exactly. out how to do consolidation? And I couldn't be happier about that because I keep saying this, that building thinking classrooms is a problem to solve, not a choreographed dance to which Peter's the only one who knows the moves. I have research. I presented the research. The research continues to grow. But the transition from what we know we need to do to making it happen in your particular context needs to be problematized and it needs to be engaged in authentically. And that's what I was seeing. People having mm. these rich conversations, sharing their ideas. It was just such an amazingly supportive space. What are the key questions? What are the questions everyone yeah. always asks? Thin slicing, how do we do more of that? Consolidation, how do I find time for that? What about notes, homework? And then of course, a million assessment questions. And they come in different flavors. There's the assessment question of what does assessment look like? And the minute you start talking, they're like, oh, I don't want to know about that. Or the people who are like, I'm there. I'm trying it. I need some practical pointers on this and that. Assessment is always has been and always will be a difficult part of teaching. You started by mm -hmm. saying math. teaching math is hard work. Yeah. It is hard work. Assessment is hard work. And nothing we do is ever going to change that. The part that's really, for me, interesting about, you had already mentioned that it's like a frame. I loved how you put that. I picture it as like a blueprint, but a blueprint's wrong because the blueprint suggests it's got to go like this and it has to go like that and it's going to look the same way. And if I look at the blueprint, you look at the blueprint, it's going to be exactly the same, which it's not. But when you say frame, it's like you're in the sandbox and you get to do things a little different. Your castle can look a little different. But if you go too far outside the sandbox, then maybe you're starting to lose some of these elements. And the interesting part is, is that that makes it so incredibly complex 
and big. And there's so many pieces. Just think of what you named about like thin slicing, which is purposeful questioning and framing the questions and creating those problem strings and notes and homework and assessments like a complete other massive, massive idea. But yet everyone is flocking to the idea when you would think the opposite would be happening, right? If you told someone, hey, if you come over here and you just like read this book, everything is going to be involved. That sounds too overwhelming for a lot of people, but yet it seems so the entry point so great. It's like a great math problem, right? A great math problem has that low floor, but a massively high ceiling. And that's sort of what was kind of popping into my mind right now is that you have this frame, this process that encompasses so many different elements from every math classroom that you could go down any rabbit hole you want and still have years left of work and practice and iterating to do as an educator to feel like you really got a solid grasp on that. Yeah. It's funny when I was first sitting down to write the book, I remember my editor saying like, you can't put 14 in the title. Like that's just a ridiculous number. Right. Like, <laughs> Too many. People like three. Yeah. Yeah. There's three. three things and that's all that matters. Five maybe at the outset, but 14 like that's. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is I think one of the strengths of building thinking classrooms, not that other things aren't strong as well, is that it's really clear that we don't do all 14 at once. Don't even try to do all 14 at once. Right. But when you're ready, as you said, when you're ready, number five is there, number six is there, right? There's more stuff to do. Yeah. And I think when people are latching on, because it is an easy change to do some of the 14, right? Some of the 14 are really hard, but some of the 14 are going to be like, I can get into this right now and then I can start to make a change. And Yeah. See and feel a difference yeah, right away. Yeah. You feel the difference in the classroom. You actually get a different feeling when students are, say, up at the walls and you're doing the work. What would you say? I sometimes worry about someone who says, I read the book, but I'm doing building thinking classrooms. And when you go in, they've got their kids up at the walls and that's the way they think it is, right? We're doing building thinking classrooms, but what they've done and it feels like what they've done is they've like, here's the work I was going to do. And here's the worksheet. Just go do it at the wall. We're doing building thinking classrooms. And here's the thing. It does feel different because your students are standing. They are talking about math as a teacher. You're like, well, that's different than me just delivering. But there's all so much more. There's so much more that we have to do to get that deep learning. That's so important for students to make the connections. Is that question popped up or is like, is anyone brought that up to your attention? Like, what do we do to help that teacher? Kind of like, you got to take that next step. I hear this from coaches a lot, actually. I think one of them even said they verticalized their lesson, but that's all they did. But I think, okay, they did that. That's a step. That's an improvement. Hopefully they see some value in that. And that value is enough to propel them into doing the next thing and the mm -hmm. next thing, the next thing. I think a return on investment is important in anything that we tried in our classroom. We're willing to work hard, but we don't want to feel like our work is wasted. So... We want to see some return on investment. And if that's giving a return on investment, but then how do we move them forward? It's funny because I've actually been working a lot on this lately, a lot around the closing of the lesson, because you asked earlier, what are the successes that we're seeing? Yeah. So, of course, we're hearing stories and we're hearing lots and lots of stories of teachers. I remember I was at the Hampt, which is the big Texas math teacher conference this summer. And I was just walking down the street and this woman crossed the road and walked right up to me and says, I'm sorry, you I down. have to tell you, I implemented partway through the year in the units that I did thinking classrooms in, my students scored well above state average on the standardized assessment and the units that came before I implemented, they scored below these sorts of things, stories about how you extended my career, these really positive uplifting stories of student affect and how they made a difference for an individual student or an individual teacher, seeing how student performance improved. And that's always a slippery slope and difficult to measure, but the magnitude of these stories. But then, you know, we also have stories like I did it. It was fun. The kids liked it. I didn't see any improvement. And it's like, okay, well, let's dig into that story a little bit better. Sure. And often when that's the story, what we see is exactly what you asked, John, which is like, right, okay, right. did random groups and vertical surfaces, and that's all I did. And what that does is it creates a different space for meaning making to happen. I think it creates a different experience for students, and students need better experiences. Mm -hmm. Learning aside, we need to improve the experiences of learners. 
they're spending a lot of time in school 200 days a year, 13 mm-hmm. years. That's a lot of time if the experiences aren't positive. But how do we actually turn those positive feel-good experiences into retained learning is an important step. And that's why I've been spending a lot of time on the closing of the lesson on how do we transform that messy meaning-making that I'm in the muck. Mm -hmm. And then how does that then translate into something that the student can walk out of the room with? But more importantly, when they come back in the room, they still Mm -hmm. have it with them as opposed to just drifting away and it being just an experience that happened in that moment, in that space with that group. And then that was it. Yeah. Kyle said we were chatting with a bunch of teachers in our live Q&A session today and teachers were wondering about, it did boil down to consolidation, but really they were asking a different question. But when we dug deeper, it was a student who was leaving the classroom and they could sense that they didn't know what the learning goal of the lesson was. They were in the muck, right? But then it didn't. Lots of good thinking. Lots of sharing. Right. And this is something we're hearing from a lot of teachers who are trying to get students thinking, which is amazing, right? We're trying to get students thinking, but they get to the end and it's either they ran out of time or they didn't think about the end. It's like, oh, we got them doing work, but then nothing. We've been calling it tying a bow on it, right? How do we tie a bow on it so that by the end of the lesson or by the end of the students walking out, they are feeling like, wow, I know exactly what the purpose was today. And I now have these next steps to go and do. And when I come back tomorrow, I'm going to do that again. And I know by the end of class today, I might be in the muck in the middle, but I know that my teacher is going to bring it home for me at the end. And I think that part has been missed for a lot of folks. And I think that we've been chatting with lots about how to bring that home at the end. So the metaphor I use is this. We put them into groups. We get them thinking, whether it's a rich, deep task or it's a thin slide sequence of tasks that get progressively harder. They're making meaning. They're in the mock. They're spitballing, right? They're trying things. They're putting it on the board. It's working. Okay, let's extend that thinking. Their ideas are converging, or maybe they're not converging, but they're finding synergy between each other. Their ideas are moving them forward. They're getting further into the task or further through the set of tasks, but their ideas are still floating. Their ideas are floating around loosely. And if the bell rings and they walk out of the room with those ideas still floating around loose, they're likely to float away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally. And then they come back the next day and they're like, nope, never seen this before. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Right. And I think we've all had that experience. You, I took your attendance. You were here. Yeah. We did this. I have photos, right? <laughs> but the purpose of a closing, and I keep using the word closing as opposed to consolidation because closing in my world includes more than consolidation, but it's what is it that the closing does? And you say tying a bow. What I say is that the closing is when the teacher helps the students organize and formalize their thoughts in such a way that they actually both expand their thinking, but also sort of sort them out, organize it in such a way that it pins down their ideas in a structure that they can then take with them. So we're going from that sort of free-floating, unorganized, Mm -hmm. informal ideas to more organized, formalized, structured ideas. And it can happen on its own. The students can certainly do it. And we have really good evidence that 60-ish percent of the students, 60 to 70% of the students, given the right experiences, can do that on their own. But the role of the teacher is to help all of them do it better, to help all the students achieve that same sort of formalized, organized thinking. But also for those students who are able to formalize and organize their thinking on their own, to also expand their thinking, to Mm. get them to realize that, yeah, you have a way of thinking about this, but there's multiple ways of thinking about that. And let me show you some of those and let me help you put those into their slots so you have a richer, thicker understanding of the concept. And there are three practices that help us do that. Consolidation is one of them. Note making is the other. And then check your understanding questions. And that's not to say that we need to do all three. But all three contribute to that process of turning the disorganized to organized and the informal to formal. I love it. I'm so happy that you articulated that because I was going to ask you that. I wanted to really get explicit and I wanted to get structured, as you just said, because I don't want anyone walking away kind of going like, so what is the difference between a closing and a consolidation? And you were saying it's more than just the consolidation. And I think you nailed it in terms of all three of those things are so important. 
And how they happen may look and sound a little different depending, right, on the scenario, the students, the approach potentially. But I really like that because I think oftentimes, and I think this is happening more times than not, not only are we not doing as a whole, we're not doing a great job with consolidating, but then we're also not formalizing it, right? Giving students some sort of structure or working with them to build that structure, right? It can be facilitated. Some teachers are like, are they just supposed to make their note on their own? And you're like, you can allow that to happen to give them the practice. But then we probably need to come in and sort of help to ensure that that structure has been formalized. Because how many times, not just in math class, but just in everyday life where something resonates with one person, you assume it's resonating in the same way with someone else. And then you have a conversation like, oh, I totally didn't know that's what you meant by that. Or I totally missed it. Remember that movie idea that we had talked about for a while? I don't know if we shared this with you, Peter. There's something called, it sounds harsh or not vulgar, but it's called the dumb viewer effect. It was something that our 90s TV shows did at the end of these hour-long, you know, mystery dramas. You were doing things along the way and you were, as a viewer, piecing things together yeah, in this mystery. I think we mystery. used the word oblivious, John. We were trying we to be called, a little yeah, bit we, softer on right, that, but you, right. know, you go called right it for the For all those there, who John. missed all the clues and all the hints. Yeah, and exactly. All the there was a character that would come in. Exactly, exactly, exactly. A character would show up and go, what I miss? Or something like that. And they would just state all the things. Yeah, so that like, you thank like, goodness oh, that guy right. showed up. Otherwise, I'd have no idea what was happening in this episode. It's kind of like that's happening in the class. For a long time, I think I taught like this for a while when I was consolidating, is you think that because you witnessed, you saw different things happening from different groups around the room, or you heard a kid say it to somebody, they didn't actually formalize it in terms of generalizing as well. So it's like, you have to make it very clear. You have to be that person who's like, the person walks in the room. We have to summarize it all up yeah. so that you, and everyone that knows person. this you is know, the, the thing. The teacher is that person that goes, here's what happened. But there's nuance there because we also don't want to make it so that the students don't have to do any of that mucking totally. up and just waiting for us. We right, have right. that That's true. space yeah, where yeah. we're just closing the door on those last few. They're like, he'll be back with the photocopies, say, that the Peter, your portable story. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, he'll be back. He'll be back. I'm waiting. But your point about we heard one student say it, so we assume everybody saw it. Even worse than that, we saw it, so then we assume that everyone sees it. It's a confirmation bias, right? You're like, oh, oh, gosh, that's what I was looking for. It's like, they must have got it. And meanwhile, they might be completely oblivious to it, right? And one of the things I've been saying a lot lately is we have to stop using ourselves as proxies for what's good for the students, because who are we? Who are we as math teachers or teachers in general? We are the survivors. We are the thrivers. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who got the gold stars and the praise and the grades. We're the ones who learned how to play the game of school, played it well, liked playing it. And then we became teachers. And it's a game that has a lot of losers and always assuming that just because something worked for us doesn't make it a proxy for something that works for all our students. And that confirmation bias is so dangerous because when we look at a student who's doing it, they're us. But I want to get back to this idea of the notes. In my research, when I originally did the research, I haven't really said this very often, but the original research on- This is insider information, right? Only found here. <laughs> the original research on the note-taking was just so bad. Not the research, but the results were so bad that, oh my goodness, this is just a waste of time. It's The data is just telling us everything negative is happening here. And in fact, our first intervention around notes was to just do no notes. So tell me more about that. Was that when they did it themselves or when the teacher did it or no, both? No, this or was in that sort of I write, you write yeah. world and watching the students and just watching how disconnected they were and how cognitively absent and how many mistakes were in the notes. Few students look back at those notes and just what a time suck it was out of that valuable short period of time. Teachers are complaining, we don't have enough time. I know we don't have enough time, but you just wasted 25 minutes doing notes that no one's looking at. Or paying attention to when they're writing it. Okay. Right. So it was better to do no notes, right? It was one of the few times in our data where actually not doing anything was better than what was happening now. And we got a bunch of time back. We weren't wasting. The kids weren't disengaged, right? And we just photocopied notes or put them online and the kids could have them. But getting back to this idea of closing as a way mm -hmm. to formalize and organize right. thoughts, note-making plays a role in that. Note-making sure, is sure. an opportunity for students to sit down and think about what happened today. 
and then to organize what happened today into some sort of a structure. In the book, I shared some ideas of, you can just have the kids write a note to their future forgetful self, or you can use one of these graphic organizers. And that data was pretty good. We went from 20% of students being cognitively present when they write notes to 60 to 80%. That is a huge win. Statistically, that's a Mm -hmm. huge win. Equity-wise, it's not such a big win because that means we still have 20 to 40% of students who are not having access to that experience, right? And yes, they can download notes and yes, we can hand them a photocopy, but the act of making notes as a closing activity, as an organizing activity was missing for these students. And often it wasn't that they couldn't access it. They just chose not to. Kids will make bad choices, right? Adults. Yeah, adults make bad bad choices. choices. (laughs) But kids will make bad choices and they will make choices that are counter to their best Mm self-interest. We know that's what happens. And so for me, it was back to the drawing board, even after the book came out, because if I have 20 to 40% of the kids who are opting out of this activity, and I know that this activity is valuable for their learning, we got to do better. Just because students make bad choices doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to do better. It's back to the drawing boards and playing with it and playing with it and playing with it. And in May, a new structure emerged finally. There was a new structure last year I played with for a long time. But again, we were having this opt out and then May came around and I was playing with this one thing and it was starting to show real promise. I ran it in 22 different classrooms, grade two to grade 12. Personally, in 22 different classrooms, it landed every single time. Mm. Every single student was involved. Every student participated. Every student got something out of it. And it was like, okay, now I'm getting closer to what it is I want. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. So I am so curious what that looks like and sounds like, because before you go there, I want to just reiterate what I heard you say, and it makes so much sense, right? We know that getting students to do this metacognitive process of thinking it through and You could see why some would opt out, though, right? Because we don't like thinking. Thinking is hard. And it's fairly obvious that it's like, after I already did a bunch of thinking, right? So now it's like, I already did all this thinking, and now he wants me to do more thinking, which we know is good. I know a lot of things are good for me that I don't do, or sometimes I do and I shouldn't do. So what is this new structure? I'm actually curious, what were you tinkering with? And is it the same, different, modified version or a smushed together version? I'll share that with you. But I think part of the reason that students are opting out, you're right, thinking is hard. And now there's more of it. But I think also, education has somehow created a situation where note having is more valuable than note making. Absolutely. I'm going to check that book and make sure that you've got all the pages in the right order and All for good reason, or I shouldn't say for good reason, for out of the goodness of the heart, the teacher thinks it's in their best interest. But yet, I used to post the notes online for a long time as well. And like you had said, I kind of came to that conclusion. I'm wasting my time writing, which was true. I post them online, but that was also not really any better. But I got time back, but it was a net zero in terms of benefit. But I got more time where I was able to do more math with students. Parents love that, by the way. Parents love it when you put notes online. And there's something to be said for that because then they feel that they can participate in their child's learning a little bit more. Or it's like you haven't fully missed it all, right? Right. And it's like great safety that someone is away and so on and so forth. All right. So what's the new structure? So 
first of all, what is the impetus for this new structure? So it, one of it was we were still having kids opt out. The other one was a couple of realizations. One was structure is important. We talked about that. And this idea of despite the fact that the kids have been mucking about, I still want them to walk out of the room with some structure. So I wanted the notes to get have an opportunity for me to provide some structure. There is also the incredible value of examples. Worked examples in math can carry a lot of understanding in them. The way we construct them, but also the yep. way we look back at them, a worked example could really carry a lot of understanding. In all the things we tried previously or that were in the book, there wasn't enough focus on worked examples. But there's also this idea that counterbalancing the, the structure is also choice. Because one of the things that is a really strong indicator that someone is cognitively present, or one of the things that really necessitates someone to be cognitively present, is if they have to make choice, they have to select, they have to sequence. When they're making choice, cognitive presence is sort of hand in hand with that. So it's not just structure, it's also choice. So the jumping off point was actually sort of the Cornell model of notes, which is an example is in the book. It's four quadrants. And the four quadrants that we tried in the book was sort of like, here's our definitions, here's our formulas, yeah. here's an example, here's something else. Like a non-example, sort of, probably. Yeah, we labeled the four quadrants. But that was sort of a jumping off point. But I started to play with this in relatively rapid succession and settled on a structure that works really well. So you got a picture, four quadrants, clockwise from the top left to the bottom left, all right? which if you're teaching geometry or trig, you hate that numbering. Yeah, that doesn't work anymore. But it it, psychologically, that's the way our mind works. Yep, 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 top yep, left yep. and then clockwise. Okay. So the top left corner quadrant is a sort of fill in the blank structure. It's here is an example, okay. but I've partially solved it. There's some boxes I want you to fill in. And there's some other things I want you to fill in. Maybe there's uh, some terminology I want you to put in place. But it's sort of like I build the frame. I indicate what things I want you to add on to the frame. That's my opportunity to provide structure. Quadrant two, top right-hand corner, is a worked example. But I'm going to tell you what the example is. So I'm going to give you the task that I want you to turn into a worked example. So it's called example one. And it's usually slightly more challenging than the worked example that was in quadrant one. But now they're doing it. They're doing it. First. Yeah. Total freedom on how they want to make it look. And so on, but I'm telling you what the task is. Quadrant three, which is the bottom right hand, is example number two, but you have choice here. You choose what you want example two to be. So here we go. Now, now we're selecting the freedom, the choice. So it's a blank box and it's like, hey, you can pull one from the wall that you did earlier. It's just you fill in what you feel like you need here. I might put a structure in. I might say something like, I want it to be this type of question. Yeah. Or I might want the answer to look a certain way, but you have choice as to what to pick. I just want to make sure that what you're picking fits from a range of choices, not that you're all of a sudden going back and doing two-digit addition in the middle of a multiplication unit or whatever. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there is some parameters, maybe hemming it in here, but still choice. The bottom left-hand quadrant is called things to remember. It's a mm -hmm. completely blank box, but it's called things to remember. And this is your opportunity to record what was meaning for you from the lesson, the things that you want to carry forward, the things that you think are important, maybe the things that were real sticking points for you that when you figured it out, you felt really good about it. And it's how you want to articulate that in your own words. So those are the four quadrants. And if you pay attention to it, what you notice is the top two quadrants are structure, mm -hmm. because the bottom two are choice, right? Examples on the right-hand side and so on. So it kind of carries this ability to have all of the pieces that we want. But here's the thing. They do it together in groups at the whiteboard. So at the end of the lesson, we may have done a consolidation. We may not. Maybe we feel that, okay, you know what? I've been checking in with every group. They all know what they're doing. Yeah. I don't need You're to do ready for consolidation. This but we're moving straight to this note making. So I draw up the structure. I put in the fill in the blank one. I indicate what the task is in quadrant two. I label quadrant three, example two, things to remember. In your groups, you're now going to produce this at your board. And it is every single time we've done this, the energy level in the room kicks up a notch. It's really interesting to see. And I think part of it is there's an element of, okay, I can do the first quadrant. 
there's this mastery space that they're in. They're enjoying the mastery experience of being able to showcase what it is they know in mm-hmm. example one. And then selecting example two ensures that they're going to have success because they get to pick it. And then the things to remember, the conversations are so unbelievably deep what they're talking about. I only have so much room, so I want to make sure what I put here matters, right? Instead of just everything. They're drawing on the whiteboards. Yeah. This note, is there value in taking it away from there? Like what you were saying, parents love to have it in the binder, the having of the note. So it's like, am I taking a picture of it? But if you're taking a picture of it, it's lost in picture land. It's not going to be. So there's a couple of ways that this works. So some teachers will take pictures of three or four representative ones and upload them. Students will take their own pictures. Some teachers take pictures and print them out and give them to the students the next day. But we've also played with And I would say that this is not. So if we do this in primary, we're doing just the top two quadrants. When we move into the other grades, we're moving into, okay, so the note making was actually more important than the note having, right? Kindergarten teachers don't care if kids have notes. Grade 12 teachers care a lot. And then it's almost a linear progression throughout there. So if you're a grade three teacher, you may value the note making more than the note having. But if you're a grade 12 teacher or grade 11 teacher, the note having is also really important to you. So in those spaces, we've played with this idea, okay, you're going to do it in your groups. And that's when 100% participate and 100% have access. And then you're going to sit down at your desk and you're going to make your own. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. The part that I love about this is what I'm hearing and some of the struggles that we've had conversations with teachers who are like, I'm just not sure how to do note to my forgetful self or my future forgetful self. And and really exactly what you've articulated here, and it's been so clear in my mind that not only is it helpful for the students to have the structure, but it's also important for the teacher to have the structure in their mind of like, what do we need to do here? Even though most teachers grew up taking notes and they grew up giving notes. So you would think that you'd be an expert at it, but it's almost like they're in this new world. They're like, well, I can't do anything that I did before. It's got to be completely different. And then it's almost like they can't see how that would come here. But what you've done is you've taken some of the most important parts, a typical note that a student would take, again, not an effective way to do it, would have some of the key pieces you want them to know. It would have some worked examples. Now, there would be less ownership, of course, as we know. But the part I really like about this is that you're bringing the worked examples in. We know worked examples are important, but bringing them in after the learning has already happened gives students the opportunity to truly engage with them. Whereas in that note-taking world, teachers would try. We've all tried to get students to, hey, Tommy, help me out with the next line of this exam. And the students are like, I know the math I got to do here. I still don't get the point of what's happening. And here it's very different. It's very clear that they can see this progression and it's definitely going to resonate in a much more effective way. I'm already imagining spinoff activities with the example two. We're all going to create our own. Everyone cover up your example two. Don't show the other groups your example two. We're going to unveil it. Who's got a hard example two? Who's got an easy example two? Let's make an example two and challenge the group beside us to see if they can do example two. It's almost like you've got this built in. You're going to have all these different example twos around the room. And if you cover up If they build it and it's like, I'm going to cover up the solution to example two, but I'm going to come up with the problem. You've now just built in the full purposeful practice for the next stage, right? Now move around the room and do example two from everybody else. And you've got that practice built in. And one of the things we have to be aware of that example two is, so there's this old Carl Sagan quote, an absence of proof is not the same as proof of absence. And just because the group picks a relatively easy question for problem two, example two, doesn't mean they can't do more. Mm-hmm. It maybe didn't occur to them. Maybe they wanted to do something more challenging, but they couldn't 
picture what that would look like. And so seeing someone else's example too is like, oh, that's what we wanted. And this is actually what we see when we transition the students into the desk to, okay, now make your own note. What they do is they kind of tend to copy their own groups, quadrant one and quadrant two. When they get to quadrant three, they start looking around the room going, oh, I like that problem too, that example Mm -hmm. too better, or I like that one. Mm -hmm. And then they pick a different one that they themselves had done. And then when they get to the things to remember, they start looking and picking from different groups. Yeah, pluck the good stuff, you know. I like that point. And what we're doing here is we're creating access. Lots of students can participate in this. What I would caution teachers away from is it's really tempting that the next stage is, okay, now you're just going to sit down and do it on your own right from scratch. You're not going to do the group stuff first. And now we're back to 20 to 40% of students opting out. And that's not what we want. Unless if you're teaching grade 12 calculus, maybe you want the kids to get to that stage. But that would be the exception to that. I would say that... Mm. For everybody else, let's give them the rich, meaningful experience of not just no making in dialogue with other students. That makes a ton of sense for sure. I really like that. Yeah. And you always provide such insightful ideas for folks to use in the classroom. And this is just another one. I love that you've thought about this area as a need for folks and built upon what you've published. And I know that I think you've got it to come out in a future edition with an update, which is going to be amazing for people. And every time we chat with you, Peter, we always learn something. And I think it gives us energy, I think. I don't know you, Kyle, but it's like every time we chat with Peter, I'm like, I'm going to run right into the classroom right now and try all these things too. And so I definitely want to thank you, Peter, for joining us here on the podcast. But before we sign off and let you get on with your world tour, what would you say is a big main message you want to leave the teachers who are listening to this with today? I think what I said earlier, building thinking classrooms is a problem to solve, right? It's not a dance to which I hold the choreography. Every classroom is different. Every time I go into a classroom, I see teachers doing things differently. And it's still a thinking classroom, right? You got to make it work, but always work the problem. Always work the problem. And I think the most important thing is we got to always balance the things that make our job more efficient against the things that make learning better. Mm. And Sometimes we have to find efficiencies just in order to be able to keep going. But always ask yourself, is this an efficiency that benefits me at the detriment of student learning? So well said. And I think it's so important. And actually, Peter, we were chatting through email earlier this week about what we should do at the upcoming summit here. But I feel like we've got our teeth into this idea. I love it. I love how we've structured this idea. We've given people a vision of what that closing looks like, that it's Not only are we in need of improving as a whole around consolidation, but also that that's not the end of the lesson, that there's still more to it. And I have a funny feeling that as we get closer to the summit in November, that some friends might have a session where I'm going to guess that this idea might come back to the forefront. So we want to thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. We know you're extremely busy. Again, not out of breath. I don't know how it's possible, but we so appreciate you on behalf of the math community, the math moment maker community for coming back to your podcast roots, as you said, being the first podcast that you were on. And we always love the conversation. So where can people find you now? I know they've heard it before on past episodes, but where's the best place for them to find your work besides your book, Building Thinking Classrooms? Where can they get in touch with Peter? Well, I'm not hard to find if you're looking for me for an email address. I think Twitter, hashtag mm-hmm. Thinking Classrooms or at PG Lily at all. The website, Building Thinking Classrooms, it's under construction right now, but the old pages are still there. And one of those is where I'm going to be giving presentations that are sort of open access. A lot of presentations I do are closed to the district, but these ones are open places. And of course, there's a new set of books coming out soon called Math Tasks for the Thinking Classroom. And the first one is going to be K to 5. And the next one following a month or two later is going to be the 6 to 12 edition. And it's going to have all these new ideas about consolidation and but wrapped around kind of what a lesson looks like, but wrapped around how we use a task, how we launch a task, how we scaffold a task, and then how we close a task. Love it. Love it. Looking forward to that. And what we'll do is when those come out, we'll go back and update the show notes page here with all the links so that folks can find those if they're listening in a year or so or whenever they grab this episode to listen to. So Peter, thanks so much. And we look forward to, again, presenting with you at the summit in November. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Safe travels and looking forward to seeing you in person again sometime soon. 
Well, I'll see you at OAME in Kingston for sure. There you go. Take care. All right there, friends. John, always a pleasure to bring Peter back on the show. Something that I was unaware of was that this was the first podcast show that he was interviewed on. And since then, he's been on very many, many podcast interviews, and I'm sure even radio and television interviews in some cases. So it's great. What an honor for us to have Peter there, also to be able to call him a close colleague and a close friend. And every time we have a conversation, you said it in the episode, you said how you always seem to learn something new. And we talk about this all the time, whether we're doing a math mentoring moment episode or whether we have a guest on, we're always learning. But you would think after having Peter on so many times, having so many conversations with Peter in person and on Zoom calls when we were preparing some of our joint sessions that we've done in the past, you would think that that learning would stop. But every single time, we always manage to dive down a bit of a rabbit hole. And today, talking about that idea of the closing and having Peter sort of look at it as something larger than just the consolidation was really interesting. And for me, what I immediately saw, and this is where I think and why we get along with Peter so well, is because our view, while our frame, as he called it, may be a little bit different in how it came to be, there are so many similarities. And I would argue that, yeah, the math moments framework that we use fits nicely in the building classroom frame, which is why both you and I use so many of those practices from thinking classrooms. And something I want to really highlight is just the importance of those three parts of the closing, that consolidation, having that opportunity for students to kind of use their metacognitive skills to kind of reflect and create that note, and then also having those follow-up prompts those are things that we do in our Make Math Moments problem-based units. In every single lesson, we're doing that process. We've never called it the closing, but from now on, it's like maybe we should be using that language. And I really loved it. So when I looked to the tree of our math class program, I was thinking about two big ones here. One is, of course, the pedagogy piece, right, which is going to be the branches of your tree. Of course, we're talking about teacher moves and all the pedagogy. But I think even more important here is that we honed in on the roots of the tree. The math content is at the core, just like the roots of the tree are one of the most important systems in the tree. They need to be there in order to nourish the tree. And the mathematics needs to be there in order to nourish your math program. If we go in and we try to implement any of those 14 practices from building thinking classrooms, and there isn't real strong math content at the forefront, then none of those moves are going to add up to anything worthwhile. It was great to hear Peter kind of articulate that just in a different but similar way to how we have in past episodes. Great summary there, Kyle. And I don't think I have anything to add. So folks, if this is the first time you've listened to this episode, you maybe saw Peter's name in the title and you're like, I got to listen to that one. I know that some of you are out there listening for the first time, then welcome and hit that subscribe button so that you can listen to more. And we encourage you if you have, have listened to before, or maybe you feel so inclined on your first time to give us that rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, hit us up so that you can leave that review. It will help the show. It'll help other educators find this episode specifically, I'm sure. So other teachers can listen to Peter and his unique insights that you're not reading in his books. So please, rating and review. Also, show notes, resources, and uh, transcripts. Head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 249. That's episode 249. And you can get all of those and plus any links we shared here in this episode. Hey, friends, as we mentioned, the virtual summit, Peter's going to be back with us. And once again, we're going to be on with Peter doing a joint session. Always so much fun, so much learning, uh, not just for us, but also, of course, for you. It is a completely free event this year in 2023. We are looking at November 17th, 18th and 19th, a completely free live virtual summit 
We have 10 featured speakers and a lot of other speakers that have amazing ideas to share. Head over to makemathmoments.com forward slash summit and you can register for that event. Makemathmoments.com forward slash summit and we will see you in our session with Peter. All right, Math Moment Maker friends, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And a high five for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, Getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.